I enjoy movies, stories with plot twists. Y'all like those kinds of movies? You're watching along, seems to be going one direction, and all of a sudden, bam! Where did that come from? I was not expecting that. Did not see that coming at all. Um, those sorts of movies stick with you. Uh, they also um, you know, uh, cause you to, to rethink the clues before and rethink where the movie's going and what the movie the purpose of the movie is or the purpose of the story is. Today, as we come to chapter 11, we come to a plot twist. We come to an account in the story of Saul that is odd. Um, we are, we're all familiar with the story of Saul. Uh, we've already looked at the, the first kind of aspects of it, the, the, um, his anointing as king, strange things that surrounded that, the losing of the donkeys and all that sort of strange stuff. And we know where it's going. We know that Saul's going to end up um, very much at odds with David. We know that Saul's going to end up tormented by a spirit. We know that Saul's going to end up uh, visiting the witch of Endor and uh, basically um, blessing sin with Yahweh's name. And ultimately, we know Saul's going to end up dying uh, in battle. Uh, and his line is going to end with him. So with that in mind, and, and knowing he's kind of, he's kind of the... He's not the protagonist of the story. David's the protagonist of the story at this point. Uh, Samuel and David, they're the two protagonists, and then everybody else is just kind of filling in. And so you have Saul here who um, you don't have very good, many good things to say about him, except in chapter 11. In chapter 11, Saul is amazing. He is everything you would expect, you would want, you would hope your king to be. If all we had about Saul was chapter 11, we would think he was one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. Because he is on point. He understands his responsibilities. He, he empathizes. One of the few times he empathizes with his people. He's responsive in a way that is direct and clear and authoritative. He is a king, exactly like you'd expect him to be. And so the question that comes to my mind, at least, is why? <laughs> why do we have this story? I mean, it would be so easy, again, knowing where it's all going, knowing that starting in chapter 12 and going on uh, throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, all we're going to see is a, is this this messed up man who's not getting anything right, who's not listening to God, who's not listening to God's prophet, who's not uh, paying any heed to his children, who's attacking his children, calling his children some awful, awful names. So why this one chapter here? Why, why did the biblical writer, because remember, the biblical writer, they, they don't tell us everything, right? I mean, Kings, for instance, Kings is, in my Bible, it's about 60 pages. It covers 400 years of history. Okay, 400 years of history in Kings in 60 pages. That tells you what? They're not telling us everything. They're telling us what 
we need to know to understand God better, to understand God's plan better, to understand salvation history and those sorts of things. They're, they're, they're telling us those key elements. So when you come here to Samuel, and you have this chapter that is out of the blue, just surprising, uh, positive account of Saul, you have to stop and ask yourself, why? why? Why tell us this good chapter about Saul when we know where it's all going? And, and I think there's probably two answers. The first is that I think part of what the biblical writer is trying to tell us is that, is that Saul had the potential. He had the capacity to be a great king within him. If he had simply followed through with the steps he took here, listening to God, being empathetic with his people, he would have been a great king. And so his falling off and his failure that we see starting in chapter 12 and all that is, is, is a reflection of what sin can do to possibilities. Many of us have potential to be much more than we end up being. And the reason we end up there is because we don't follow through with the plans and steps, the ideas that God would have us follow through with. So I think that's, that's one reason. But I, I think there's another reason. And this is the reason that I want to focus on today. And that is that as the first king of Israel, Saul is the first one, the first opportunity we get to see what the Messiah would be like. To understand what that role is, to understand who that person would be, to understand what that person would accomplish, and so forth. And if all we had concerning Saul were negative accounts, we wouldn't get a very clear, wouldn't get a very good picture of what the Messiah was supposed to be. And I believe in many ways, as I hope to demonstrate this morning, that this chapter shows Saul as a, a predecessor, a foreshadowing of the Messiah, just as every other king of Judah and Israel would be. Um, even those who, who never really got to serve, such as Zerubbabel in the post-exilic era, when Israel wasn't allowed to have a king, Zechariah acknowledges Zerubbabel as what? As God's signet ring. That is, he is the representation of God here on earth. And yet, as far as we can tell, Zerubbabel didn't do much. Why is Zerubbabel a signet ring? Because he is a foreshadowing of the Messiah. This is every other kingly individual would be. So I want to look at the passage this morning through the lens of Saul foreshadowing who the Messiah would be. We begin in chapter 11 with, uh, with verse 1 with uh, Israel in dire straits. There is a king of the Ammonites named Nahash who is wreaking havoc on the Transjordan area. This is the area on the, if you're looking at a map of Israel, this is the area on the right side of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, um, Not a lot of things happened in that area, but some of the events of the Old Testament that were significant did. And Nahash is one of those. It says that Nahash the Ammonite came and laid siege to Jabesh Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite replied, Okay, I'll make one with you on this condition, that I gouge out everyone's right eye and humiliate all Israel. Don't do anything to us for seven days, the elders of Jabesh said to him. 
And let us send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. If no one saves us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah, Saul's hometown, and told the terms to the people, all wept aloud. Just then, Saul was coming in from the field behind his oxen. When the matter with the people, what's the matter with the people? Why are they weeping? Saul inquired, and they repeated to him the words of the men of Jabesh. When Saul heard these words, the spirit of the spirit of God suddenly came powerfully on him, and his anger burned furiously. And he took a team of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by messengers who said, This is what will be done to the ox of anyone who does not march behind Samuel and Saul. As a result, the territory of the Lord fell on the people. Excuse me, the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they went out united. So you have your opening words here concerning Saul. You have this individual named Nahash. Uh, apparently a very arrogant king. Uh, he, uh, we know from uh, additional t- uh, references to him in the Septuagint and in the Dead Sea Scrolls that, that he had been wreaking this sort of havoc for quite a time, quite a while before this particular event transpires. And he comes to Jabesh Gilead. Now, remember what Jabesh Gilead is. Jabesh Gilead has a special connection to Saul. Um, back in the book of Judges, men from Jabesh Gilead uh, were killed for their failure to respond to uh, a call, and the women from Jabesh Gilead were then given to the tribe of Benjamin. And so the tribe of Benjamin was repopulated from women from Jabesh Gilead, which means what? Saul, being from the tribe of Benjamin, is probably related to this particular city. He's connected in some way. But nonetheless, uh, Nahash is there. He, he wants to, he, the, the people seek a co- covenant with him. And he says, I'll give you a covenant if you let me doubt, gouge out your right eye. Now, why the right eye? What is, what is his plan here? What's his purpose here? It's probably twofold purpose. Number one was military. To cut out a soldier's right eye is to render them without their most dominant eye for warfare. That's going to affect your archers. That's going to affect your sword and shield individuals who are carrying the shield here, probably covering your left eye most of the time, so forth. It's going to affect depth perception. It's going to make you basically useless as a soldier in many ways. So that's one part of it. But the other part is, and he says this, was to humiliate them and to render them useless in their own faith, in their own religion. Being mutilated this way would prevent them from being able to go to the temple. They would, they would not have been allowed to enter into the temple for worship. That doesn't mean they couldn't worship at all. It just means they couldn't take part in certain temple festivals and rites. So this was a this is a, a, a big request. It was it was a, a way of, of the individual here again trying to move them out of place where God would have them. So often in our lives when we are facing difficulties, facing situations, we uh, more or less make a deal with the devil. And I don't mean that literally. I mean that as a, a symbolically, where we, we compromise things. We settle for things. We make agreements with things that we otherwise wouldn't have because we feel like that's the only way out. 
That's where the men of Jabesh Gilead were. And in response to that situation, in response to those situations, we need to do what the men of Jabesh Gilead did. We need to reach out to King, to the Messiah. We see here that Saul is further confirmed by the Spirit of God. We've already had his anointing. We saw the stories with the prophets and so forth. But this is the first time we, we see that sentence. And the Spirit of Yahweh descended upon Saul. And whenever you see that in Scripture, look out. Something significant is about to happen. Something big, something unexpected, something overwhelming is about to happen. Now we need to be careful to, to not draw too, too much of a comparison, too much of a connection between the function of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament and the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. The Spirit of God seems to be a manifestation of God, not necessarily the Holy Spirit himself. That is, the Spirit of God is, is God at work empowering people, which is similar to what the Holy Spirit does, but they're described two very different ways. Um, still, I think it is, is uh, appropriate to, to make some comparisons, especially in terms of the Spirit's role in leadership and empowerment. In Luke 4, Jesus reads from Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, it's by the Spirit that Jesus heals. In Matthew 12.28, it's by the Spirit that he casts out demons. We see the Spirit of God empowering Jesus in his ministry just as the Spirit of God empowered Saul here in his. And that's a very important component of what it means to be the Messiah, what it means to be anointed. What are we anointed with? We are anointed not just with the, the physical oil. The physical oil is, is what? It's a symbol of the Spirit of God. And so we see this foreshadowing of who of who Jesus would be. Now, the question comes at this point, maybe, who is first in order, Jesus or the Holy Spirit? Because it's the Spirit who is, who is, uh, who is directing him, him, empowering him, helping him. But as with all things with the Trinity, we always need to remember it's not different ranks that we're talking about. There are no ranks in the, in the, the Trinity. It's not the Father, then under him is the Son, then under him is the Holy Spirit. That's that's what's called um, subordinationism. That's a false doctrine of the Trinity. True doctrine of the Trinity is you have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit. All three persons are equal. All three persons are co-eternal. But all three persons have different roles in terms of what they do. And the role of the Spirit is to empower. And so at times we see Jesus dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Uh, John 4, 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Spirit is, light, is what? It's leading Jesus at that moment. 
but we see what elsewhere in Revelation 3 1. He possesses the Spirit. He controls it. In Acts 2.33, he grants the Spirit. In John 15.26, he sends the Spirit. And so we, we, we see the distinction in their roles here. And as the Spirit empowered Saul, and as the Spirit empowered Jesus, the Spirit empowers us as well to carry out our ministry, to perform our task, to do so in a way that points to God and not ourselves, to do so in a way that, that keeps us from making compromises that will ultimately harm us, to do so in a way that, uh, that draws people to God and not ourselves. That is the role of the Spirit and is revealed to us through person of the Messiah, the one who is confirmed by the Spirit of God, who sends the Spirit of God, and who lives according to the Spirit of God. He models for us what our relationship should be as well. Second thing that the Messiah will do is he'll bring victory. If we read on in the passage, Saul counted them at Betzik. And there, there were 300,000 Israelites, 30,000 men from Judah. He told the messengers who had come, tell this to the men of Jabesh Gilead. Deliverance will be yours tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. So the messengers told the men of Jabesh, and they rejoiced. And then the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, tomorrow we will come out, and you can do whatever you want to us. The next day, Saul organized the troops into three divisions during the morning watch. They invaded the Ammonite camp and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. There were survivors, but they were so scattered that no two of them were left together. Here we see Saul bringing this great victory, empowered by the Spirit, directed by empathy, understanding his people and understanding their need. He intervenes, and as, a, as he intervenes, he brings them deliverance, which again is the foreshadowing of what the, the Messiah would do. It was predicted for us in Genesis chapter 3 that the one who's coming to see the woman would what? Would crush the head of the serpent. He would bring us deliverance. And when Jesus hangs there on the cross, what does he say except it is finished? It's done. I brought the deliverance I came to bring. I brought the victory I've come to perform. We sang earlier about the lion and the lamb. This is a, the, these two images are some of the clearest images related to Jesus' role as the Messiah that we find in Scripture. In Ephesians 4, 7 and 8, it says, But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he had led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. What's Paul saying there? Paul's saying there is that Jesus, the Messiah, is the victor. We are the spoils. We are the ones that he leads to victory. We are the ones that, that uh, are his prize in victory. We are the ones who represent the whole reason for the battle in the first place. In Revelation, we read 
of John's mourning, his sorrow over the fact that he that no one is able to open the seven seals. The seven seals being what? The redemption of humanity by God and God's plan. Who is worthy to carry that out? Who is worthy to perform such a task? And then he's told, don't weep. For behold, the Lion of Judah is there to open the seals. And it says that he turns, and as he turns, what? I saw one on the throne like a lamb who had been slaughtered. The Lion of Judah is also the Lamb of God. God's gift to us, according to John one twenty nine. He's a reminder of God's deliverance. I encourage you sometime to compare Exodus 12 with 1 Corinthians 5. Just read the two chapters. You'll see the role that Jesus plays as the Passover lamb. In Isaiah 53, 7, the lamb is the substitutionary sacrifice of the Messiah on our behalf. In 1 Peter 1, 19, the lamb is the great emancipator from slavery. He frees us from the captivity that we find ourselves in under sin. And because he is victorious, because he is all-powerful, we ourselves can have victory over the enemy. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? That is, the things that we've said about Christ and, and the power that he brings, the deliverance that he brings. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribu tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That passage doesn't get your, your blood pumping and your heart going and your spirit ready to go out and share faith. I don't know what passage can. What can stand against us when we have the Messiah standing in front of us? What can resist? What can overcome? Nothing. I'm sure if Paul wanted to probably list several other things. When he starts saying neither dead nor alive nor angels nor rulers nor presidents things, there are things to come, no powers, nor hide, nor dead. He's like, I keep going all day, folks, but I probably ought to wrap it up here. Nor anything else in all creation. Nothing else in all of creation could stand in the way of one who is walking with the Messiah, the deliverer. And then the Messiah also ultimately has power over those who 
have rebelled against him. The story goes on, verse 12, after this, people said to Samuel, who said that Saul should not reign over us? Give us those men so we can kill them. Remember back at the end of chapter 10, had those people who were saying, who's this who can lead us? Who's this who, who has authority over us? Who, who, can, can Saul really deliver us from these things? Now that he's delivered and now that he has demonstrated he is, it is possible, the people want the heads of those who said this. Now as king, Saul had the right to say, okay, bring him in. Let's hold them accountable for their careless words. Let's hold them accountable for their wicked words. They deserve it, for they've rebelled against me. They undermined my authority. They rejected my leadership. They were treasonous in their words. They indeed deserve to be killed. But once more, in this chapter at least, Saul gets it right. But Saul ordered, no one will be executed this day, for today Yahweh has provided deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let's go to Gilgal so we can renew the kingship there. So all the people went to Gilgal and there in the Lord's presence, they once again acknowledged Saul as king. They sacrificed fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence, and Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Saul says what? Yeah, I have the right to kill him, but I'm not going to do it. Why? Because it's Yahweh that brought the victory today. And ultimately, we all answer to him. He converts the right of judgment into the right of grace. I have the right to kill him. I also have the right to forgive them. Jesus, too, possesses both those rights. In Matthew 25, 31 through 33, we get the right of judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him he will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And we place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Jesus has the right of judgment. He has the right of holding people accountable for their sins. Acts 10.42 says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus calls the shots. And he has every right to judge those who are treasonous to him, who have rebelled against him, who have rejected him. That's all of us. It's every one of us. There's not a person who's living who or who has lived who has not been treasonous to God, to Jesus, who's not sought their own way, who's not sought their own purposes, who's not sought their own reasons and rationales when God has said, Mine are the ones that matter. And he has every right to cast us in 
to hell to judge us for our sin. But just as Saul did in chapter 11, but on a much bigger scale, Jesus sought to bring forgiveness instead of judgment. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus the Messiah. His mercy is great. It's powerful. We live in a world that so often calls for justice. And sometimes we need to see justice. And sometimes I'm convinced God carries out justice, even before our eyes, just as a way of confirming, as a way of revealing, as a way of reflecting that that power is his. He does possess it. But we also have a God who shows us mercy. And what is mercy? Mercy is God's action toward us that we don't deserve. A story of a, a mother who once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son, the emperor replied that the young man had committed certain offenses twice and that justice demanded death. Mother said, but I don't ask for justice. I plead for mercy. Napoleon replied, but your son does not deserve mercy. And the mother simply replied, sir, would not be mercy if he deserved it. When it comes to the question of salvation, none of us deserve it. We look at some of the evils that mankind has brought on other humanity. We tend to weigh those things. This is much worse than that and so forth. And yes, there are certain sins that are worse than others. Scripture itself tells us that. God tells us that. The scripture also tells us that even the least of our sins is a great, great, great affront to the God of this universe. So that even what we would call the least of our sins is, is fully capable and fully, rightfully capable of separating us from God forever.
but God doesn't always act just in justice. Praise God. He offers mercy. By grace, we have been saved through faith, not as a work, lest any person should boast. We're standing before God, whole today, cleansed today, because you've given your life to Him and allowed the blood of Christ to cover you, to wash you, to cleanse you of that sin. Then you stand in a secure place. No element of creation can take that away from you. But if you're here this morning and you don't have that relationship, you've never surrendered to Christ, you've never responded to God, you've never turned your life over to the King, then you stand as a treasonous, rebellious traitor before the King of the universe. He will judge you. He will punish you in a way that's severe, in a way that's significant, in a way that is eternal. But he'd much rather show you mercy. He'd rather that so much that he sent his son to die in your place. If you but respond. He'll give you life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your mercy, your love, ideas and concepts that are beyond my capacity to appreciate or understand fully, but for which I am so very thankful. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who has never Responded to your offer of mercy, your responded to your offer of grace. That you would draw them right now in your power, that they would feel that tug to respond, and that they would be obedient in responding to you. God, I pray that you would help all of us this morning to be responsive to your authority, your position. Your son's role as Messiah, your role as creator, providence, and to leave here with a renewed commitment to follow you wherever you lead. We'll give you all the glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.